This is our last session in our Biblical Foundation for All Things. So hopefully we'll complete everything today. I've got probably more than we can cover, so I'll probably abbreviate a few things. But we will complete the class. Last time we uh, were looking at the destruction of the Kingdom of Israel primarily the latter part of First Kings and most of Second Kings, whereas at the end of Second Kings we see the nation taken into captivity. The implications that we've been drawing, number one, we've looked at uh, the reason for it partly is because of the weakness of human kings. And God judges leadership and evaluates them. We see that evaluation in the biblical text. So we looked at every one of them as weak. Even Israel's greatest king, David, still had problems with the flesh. And in the midst of that, we have a role of prophets. What what do they fit in in all of this? And they are in a very crucial time in history where God is going to use them in a variety of ways. And we went over many ways that God uses them. A major way is they're the the primary writers of Scripture, so they're the recorders of God's revelation. And we ended our time looking at the discipline of the exile, where the kingdom, the nation, the people, people of Israel and Judah go into exile. Now, the Assyrians conquered the northern ten tribes, and then the Babylonians conquered the southern two tribes, and we wanted to look at what is God doing during that period of exile, and that's kind of where we'll pick up. I mentioned that one thing that the exile solidifies for us is the complete destruction of the nation. The nation is totally out of the land. They uh, no longer are free to observe their constitution. They can't offer sacrifices. They can't live freely, they can't do all the things that the law specifies. And also, they are a united people, but in some ways they are even split up. They are scattered to some extent. Some of them are together in Babylon. So all of the elements that make up a nation have been disrupted. And we also said that God also impresses upon them the dangers of the of idolatry, and in large measure, Israel... Not entirely, but in large measures is not idolatrous after the exile. Some of the political implications of this, of what we've said so far, number one, we've looked at total freedom that God gave the children of Israel. And what does the children of Israel do? What happens during the period of the judges? Every man does what? As he does what is right in his own eyes. Man can't govern himself. God has to raise up these judges to deliver them. So during the period of judges, it demonstrates that man has a hard time handling total freedom. So we have two ends of a political spectrum here. Total freedom does not work apart from God at the center of it. And when man departs from what God reveals then uh, man ends up with doing what is right in his own eyes. And and eventually, anarchy results. They did right in their own eyes. 
The other end of the spectrum is totalitarianism. And this is what First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings teaches us. Where you have kings, you have one authority, you have one in charge. But uh, we have the failure of kings, and as a result of that, we have the exile. So you have kind of two ends of the spectrum in terms of how governments, how nations run themselves. It's interesting that the founders of our country were fully aware of this. In other words, they had a biblical worldview. They understand. They understood this tension between freedom and totalitarianism. They structured a very unique constitution that is unique amongst all nations that have ever existed, which is full of great wisdom. They tried to strike the balance. They knew that man could not rule himself and be totally free. So man had to have government. But government had to be structured in such a way that uh, all power would not reside in only uh, the hands of a few, because then you would end up with totalitarianism. And almost all other governments kind of vacillate between these two, and most of them tend and eventually end up as totalitarian. And the founders of our country basically tried to strike a balance such that totalitarianism would be avoided in order to protect freedom of individuals. And I think God blessed that. Unfortunately, we have moved quite a bit away from that concept, and we are abandoning that constitution today. And we will reap the consequences probably very shortly. So just some political implications of what we've looked at from the nation of Israel, beginning with what God gave them. He gave them total freedom. It ended in anarchy. He gave them kings, and it ended in exile. So this brings us back. We started a a foundation on liberty. Man is created free. That's without sin. That's in the garden. That's Genesis 1 and 2. So man is not in bondage. We lost that as a result of sin. It's not because of culture. It's not because of cities. Number three, it's distorted by selfishness on a large scale. That's what Babel tells us in terms of liberty. So God doesn't distort liberty. It's man that does it. And God instituted government after the flood, but government tends towards oppression. It tends towards totalitarianism. It's not laws that are bad, because we have the Mosaic law, which are God's laws, but it's government oppression. It's maintained, in other words, liberty is maintained by God's word. This is the teaching of Sinai, the giving of the law, The law would have, had it been followed, would have maintained liberty. And in fact, when the law was followed, it did result in the period of the kingdom. Even though there was sin intermixed, but the law is designed to maintain liberty. Not legalism, not legalistic observance. Remember, the law deals with the heart. And sixthly, in the period of the judges, we saw that apostasy causes a loss of liberty. So if you depart from God, you can expect to lose liberty. You can see this within a family. A child that is rebellious, the parents have to set close boundaries. A child that is obedient, the parents can let the child have more freedom. So as a child produces more responsibility, parents can grant more freedom. So you can see it on a 
small scale, but you can see it amongst nations as well. And the opposite is true when people are rebellious in terms of God or go into apostasy, it ends in losing freedom. Libertarianism is not going to solve the problem. It's damaged by sinful leaders. This is the teaching of the period of the kings. It's not government per se. Government is a divine institution. And it's only going to be restored by Messiah during the millennial kingdom, not man. Man will never achieve freedom. We've come close in our country. To be restored, number eight, by Messiah, man cannot establish it. So there's your biblical foundation for liberty or freedom. A theological or a doctrinal implication of this period of time, and Charlie Clough likes to develop this, and I've included it as well, is this doctrine of sanctification. Doctrine of sanctification. So let's talk real briefly on it, and that'll conclude our, except for the the apologetic portion, that'll conclude our portion on the destruction of the kingdom of Israel. First of all, the concept, what is sanctification? The words for sanctification in Hebrew, kadosh, has the idea of to separate, the idea of to set apart. The New Testament corresponding word, agiazo, also has the same idea of to separate, to consecrate, to dedicate something. So the concept of sanctification in a spiritual sense is God separating out the believer for a special purpose. That's the essence of sanctification. Salvation separates us from the kingdom of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of light. And God wants that process to continue such that we continue to separate ourselves and cooperate with him such that we have a part in our sanctification. And that's what I'll talk about in a moment here. So the concept is the separating out. Remember, God is dealing with evil throughout world history. Sanctification is God dealing with evil on an individual one-on-one basis. He's trying to separate us from evil. We live in a sinful world. We have sinful natures. We're tempted by a sinful adversary, Satan. And sanctification is the process of God working in our lives. And this is a process he will work throughout our lives. It won't be completed. And throughout our lives, he will continually conform us to his image, such that we reflect who he is and his righteousness, rather than the uh, image of the world. That's the concept. Now, there's different aspects of sanctification. There's what we would describe as positional sanctification. And when we say positional, that means that right now, you are, from God's perspective, you and I are totally set apart. Nothing's going to disrupt that. From God's perspective, we are already completed in terms of separation from evil. That's positional. So God views us from that perspective. He views us as totally forgiven, totally holy. That's why the Bible can describe us as saints, because God has positionally separated us out from the world. Now there's also what's called ultimate sanctification, 
This will not take place until after either we die or the rapture takes place and we go to be with the Lord and we are separated from the sinful nature so that we no longer have the sinful nature. So this ultimate sanctification is total separation from sin. Never to be tempted again. Never to have weaknesses of the flesh ever again. Never to sin. The Bible also calls that glorification. Where only the new nature will be present and that new nature will be fully developed, fully manifested. That's ultimate. So if there's a positional and if there's an ultimate in the future, this positional took place the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. So the positional took place in the past for those that are believers. The ultimate will take place in the future if you're still breathing, if you're still alive, it's future, then what would you expect? Right now, present, exactly. We call that progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification is ongoing, moment by moment, and continues until we go to be with the Lord. Never completed. So we're always in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. So it's experiential, which is... The antithesis of positional. So we can sin. We can be tempted. We do fail. And we see that in all the kings. And it's the holiness that we strive for. The separation, the conformity to the image of Christ. And that's an ongoing process. That's what Christian growth is all about. That's what the church attempts to do to move people forward spiritually to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is to be consistently walking in the Spirit, consistently applying Scripture, consistently growing, consistently doing what God has called us to do. So that's progressive sanctification. Now this sanctification has purposes, and basically the purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. To make us righteous, we are declared righteous and viewed as perfectly righteous, but yet there is unrighteousness within us because of the old nature. The purpose of it is to make us more like Christ, make us more righteous, more to conform to who we are and what God has done for us positionally, such that we reflect more and more who we ultimately will be. So that's the purpose, to make us what we are intended to be in Christ. And basic principles, uh, the principles, the first principle is the work of God. Number one, it's the work of God. In other words, God is the one that does the work. But he uses the word. It's God's work in us through his word as he reveals. So it's ultimately a continuation of what he started in salvation. I'm confident that God will complete what he began in you, uh, Philippians 1. Also, God has provided certain things, the provision of God. Second, uh, and we've looked at this passage, Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, in that God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness in his word, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has provided us everything that we need for life and godliness. Life and godliness. Principles of sanctification, yeah. And it's a 
God has provided everything that we need for sanctification. The Word of God, God uses the Word to show us the error of our ways, to correct us. So God's Word is used. In fact, that's the main instrument that God uses. That's why it's important to know the Word, to apply the Word, to continually be in the Word. But thirdly, we play a part in it, so we say the responsibility of the believer. It's not automatic. Some people grow faster than others. Some people go up and down more than others. Some people steadily grow and advance. And we are responsible for responding appropriately. Allowing God to work through his word, allowing what God has already provided to, in fact, work within us. But it's our responsibility, even though God is the one that does the work. Three major principles. And we could expand these, and I could give you lots of scriptures. In fact, let me give you some scriptures. The work of God, jot these down for the sake of time, because we want to move on today. First Thessalonians 5.23. And all of these emphasize that God is the one that does it. The Father, that's First Thessalonians 5.23. The Son, Hebrews 10.10. 10. Hebrews 13.12. The Holy Spirit works a work. First Peter one. Two. And these are just a few of the passages. First Peter 1, 2. And I gave you the passage that God has given us everything that we need, the provision of God. That's 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. And the responsibility of believers, Hebrews 12, 14. 1 Peter 1, 15. I think that's be holy, for your heavenly Father is holy. In other words, we are responsible to separate ourselves from sin. That's holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, where he uses the word sanctification there. And in terms of the passages that we've been looking at, they serve to illustrate these principles and this concept of sanctification. We saw at Jericho and at Ai, remember during the conquest, what was the key there? If the children of Israel do what? If they obey, if they remain loyal, if they follow God's instructions, what happens? They have victory. That's Jericho. If they don't, what happens? They have defeat. That's the first part of Ai. Now, they have to reorient, and then they eventually conquer Ai. That kind of illustrates the concept that, basically, as you are obedient, God will give you victory over sin. Secondly, we see that we see that in David and Bathsheba that no one is perfect, not even the ideal king. But we also see that to be a man after God's own heart, it's not perfection, but it's to realize one sin, to be a sin, to be convicted of that sin, pick oneself up when fail, failing, and move on. Confess that sin, acknowledge it, move on. David illustrates that. Saul illustrates the antithesis. Saul doesn't do that. And Saul is rejected. Also illustrated at AI, also illustrated by Saul, is that the flesh cannot sanctify. The flesh cannot sanctify. So that concept is illustrated. Concept of the flesh not sanctifying. AI, Saul, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and a lot of the kings illustrate that the flesh... Cannot sanctify. 
Fourthly, the concept of trusting God and God blessing. We see David, again, turning and trusting to God. Kings like Hezekiah, who introduced reforms. These are the good kings. King Josiah. Principles of sanctification here. Fifthly, we, we will see ultimate sanctification illustrated by the prophets of this period of time. Because they predict an ultimate regathering, an ultimate establishment of the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom, where Israel will ultimately be brought to the point where God wants them to be as a nation. Prophets illustrate that during this period of time. So the principles of sanctification are illustrated. I'm going to start another foundation for history that will complete with the last major event. Uh, we've been talking a lot about history throughout the course. And I've given you a timeline of the major historical events. And obviously, all history begins with the Creator in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. That's the beginning of history. So it's not evolution again. We're continually rejecting evolutionary thinking here. So history begins with the first words of the Bible. Or the first word. Bereshit is the Hebrew word there. It's one word. In the beginning, one word. Bereshit. So it begins, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. That's the beginning of history. And the first major event is what? Creation. And what we've been saying throughout is world history, you need to give priority to the biblical events. That is world history. Can you think of a world event that is more important than any of the events that we've looked at? Here's your opportunity. (laughs) Go through your UNM textbook and see if you can find anything in there more important than the events we've looked at. I don't think so. So basically, the biblical events are the major events of world history, and hopefully you've you've got a better perspective on world history now that We've looked at it from this perspective. So secular world history is deficient in, in a lot of cases, it denies the biblical events, the major biblical events, and minimizes some of the other events that it permits. Thirdly, world history, we've seen this continuously, in every event is under God's sovereign control. God's sovereignty. All historical events. And that will include the events that are transpiring today in our nation and in the nations around the world. God only permits those things that will fulfill his purpose ultimately. So events are not random. It almost appears that events just take place depending on who is born and who rises up and what nations dominate. If you study world history from a secular viewpoint, it almost seems like events are random. And this is why a lot of people are bored by world history because it appears that there's no purpose, there's no organization, there's nothing behind history, it's just events that take place, you don't know what's going to happen. They seem to be random, but God has a plan. And all events are under his sovereignty, all events of world history. And ultimately the purpose of world history is to glorify God, as all things are. So there's not a purposelessness about world history. It's another reason why people don't like it. They don't see a purpose behind history. It's not until you understand biblical history that you see there's a purpose behind all events. And we'll add to this when we uh, get to the next major event.
So that concludes the destruction of the nation of Israel in terms of the biblical text and the implications. And for the apologetic portion, uh, very briefly, and I've abbreviated this some, we could talk about eschatology. And the reason we introduce eschatology, this is the study of last things or the study of Bible prophecy, you could say. And the apologetic is the approach of premillennial eschatology fits the Old Testament theology best. Now, premillennial eschatology is a minority viewpoint within the church as well. And obviously it's ignored by the secularists. Secular people don't look at prophecy at all other than false prophets like Gene Dixon or She's kind of gone, isn't she? Who's the present day false prophets of our day? Horoscopes, that sort of thing. But basically our culture rejects future events, rejects prophecy in general. Within the church, premillennial, and what we mean by premillennial eschatology is that Christ comes first to establish a literal and real millennial kingdom. Now, we won't get into that in our class here. We've touched on it. But the reason we bring this up, but the Old Testament kind of lays the foundation, I think, for premillennial eschatology. I'll deal with that in the next uh, sequel, I guess you could say, of this course. Which That's premillennial. Yeah, pre-Christ comes before the millennium and establishes the millennium. And the reason for that, number one, probably the most popular eschatological view is called amillennialism. This is the viewpoint of all of Roman Catholicism. This is the viewpoint of all of the Reformed churches. Well, most of the Reformed churches, there are some premillennial reform, but they're inconsistent with their own theology, I think. It's uh, the viewpoint of most Calvinistic churches is amillennialism. And the idea here is that there is no millennium in the literal, earthly, material sense. The millennium is spiritual, and in fact, the church is in the millennium now. And the church basically is the millennium. Well, the major problem with that is there's no church in the Old Testament. So what Reformed theologians have to do is they have to make Israel equal to the church. In other words, Israel is God's people, so Israel is equal to the church. But what you're doing is you're introducing a hermeneutic that I think is not a sound hermeneutic. You are spiritualizing. In other words, you're injecting a meaning that is not part of what the text intends. No church in the Old Testament. Have we seen the church in the Old Testament? Anyone? Not in any of the major events? What? No. What happened is the early church, if you if you read, even Paul, if you read his writings on some prophetic passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, it almost gives you the impression that Paul expected to see the rapture. Paul expected to see the events of the end of the age and some of the other writers right in that way as well. And you have the element, even in the book of Revelation, the time is near. 
Now, it doesn't mean necessarily chronologically, but the time is near, has the idea of imminence. In other words, it could happen at any time. But what happened is the early church expected Christ to return and to bring the kingdom and establish the kingdom, just like the Old Testament seemed to indicate. When Christ didn't come, and we're getting close to a thousand years here, theologians began to say, oh, ha-ha, we missed it. This is a millennium, and we're coming up on a thousand years here. We're coming to perhaps the end of the millennium here. And they began to introduce spiritualized interpretation of these prophetic passages of the Old Testament, some of which we've looked at. The second coming is at the end, or the second coming was at Pentecost. It it varies. In other words, the coming of Christ was at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Yeah, you didn't know you missed it, did you? There's another viewpoint that almost died out after World War II called post-millennialism. It's been revived in recent years in some Pentecostal or charismatic circles. It's also been revived within the Reformed Church. Post-millennialism in that the idea of post-millennialism is that the church gets stronger and stronger. Believers begin to dominate more and more. Believers impact the culture in a greater degree more and more as the years pass, such that eventually the church brings in the kingdom. And then Christ says, well done, good and faithful servants, pats us on the back, and he returns post-millennially, in other words, after the millennium, in order to reward the church for its great efforts. How are we doing so far? (laughs) just about to establish the millennium right yeah right (laughs) okay and what we've learned from the old testament not man is not capable of bringing in the kingdom that's vividly illustrated in the period of the kings and the church has not done any better in fact the church is very very weak today and the church has departed The church is very close to where Israel was at the end of their history. The church is in great apostasy. The church is idolatrous. The church is perverted in a lot of ways. And those that are conservative, those that hold to a high view of Scripture, those that basically obey the Scriptures are in a very small minority. And you and I, a small minority, are not capable of bringing in the kingdom. It requires supernatural action, which basically is premillennialism. And that's what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament ends in failure of man. And the prophets predict that Messiah will come and establish his kingdom. The New Testament tells us Messiah came, offered the kingdom, and was crucified. But it also tells us, and in fact it parallels the Old Testament in that the prophets tell us that Christ will return, and when he returns, he'll establish the kingdom. That's the essence of premillennialism. Messiah must be the one that brings the kingdom. Does that make sense? So Old Testament really supports a premillennial eschatology. That's the point I'm making here. Questions? Um, Nope. Doing all right? Okay. Israel's king, kind of a closing thought here, Israel's king still disciplines... He disciplined Israel. That discipline was harsh and severe, but it was effective. 
It was not excessive. It was what God required in order to get Israel where Israel needed to be. God is working in history to continue to discipline Israel to prepare them for the coming of their Messiah. But Israel's king still disciplines individually you and I. So we need to be responsive and learn from God's God's discipline. Any questions on destruction? Why don't we take a break at this time and we'll come back and then we'll have some outstanding students enlighten us in a couple of areas. Come to our last event in our study of Old Testament. I call it the return. Now, a lot of scholars describe this period as restoration, and the reason I don't choose restoration because it's only a partial restoration. It's not the ultimate or final restoration, but it is a return that partially restores, restores enough the nation of Israel, restores them enough, such that they should be prepared for the next major event, in fact, the most important event of all of world history, which is the coming of Israel's Messiah. The the coming of Messiah. And the main scriptures that historical passages that deal with the return are Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, you could include Esther, but Esther really more deals with children of Israel still in exile. So, really, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. And in our outline, I've titled the entire Old Testament, Anticipation of Messiah. In fact, in that second outline sheet that I gave you, that's kind of an outline of the whole Old Testament that I've been giving you, kind of bits and pieces of, kind of put it together there. Not in great detail, your other sheets have a little bit more detail, but it gives you kind of an overall picture. And I've got on that outline sheet also the major events off to the middle there. And actually you also have basically the essence of the next course, which would be the New Testament portion. But the Old Testament, we are anticipating Messiah throughout And if you remember, we said from Genesis 3.15, we have the first announcement of the coming of a seed. It's not clear what that seed represents, who that seed will be, but that's the first note of the Old Testament that begins the whole development of anticipating Messiah. And this period of return is part of that story. We saw the origin of Israel. That's essentially Genesis. The emergence of Israel as a nation. That would be beginning in the book of Exodus through the book of Judges, historically. Or actually Joshua, but you could include Judges there. Then we have the kingdom of Israel. Judges is kind of a transition between the emergence of Israel and the the kingdom. This is God's intent for the nation. And the kingdom of Israel anticipates an ultimate kingdom when Messiah will come and actually demonstrates the need for an ideal king or a sinless king because all the other kings are weak and sinful. So we saw the kingdom of Israel and part of that we saw the destruction of that kingdom or the end of that kingdom. 
And then Roman numeral 4 on my outline is the return of Israel. And when I say Israel, it's kind of both Israel and Judah at this point, even though Israel is split during the divided kingdom. Now God's going to deal with Israel somewhat as a composite. So it's the children of Israel return to the land primarily. And they're not really an independent nation. They're, they're, from here on out, they are dominated by Gentile powers. It was under David and Solomon that the kingdom was essentially an independent kingdom and nation and at its high point, but that collapsed and now they have returned and there's a lot of implications concerning the return. One of the main ones that will develop is that God is not done with the nation of Israel. So they must return, and an important part of their history is their Messiah has not come yet, their their Savior, if you will. So just kind of the final piece here, we see everything kind of building upon itself. We have the original creation that is very good. We have the fall of man that does damage to the creation itself, not just man. Certainly man is the emphasis. There's, from here on out, sinful man. And God brings judgment upon sinful man. Things degenerate until the time of the flood, where God essentially destroys all of mankind. Begins anew with a family of eight. And that family develops into civilizations that violate what God intends in terms of filling the earth, multiplying and filling the earth. So God scatters them at Babel so that they will become nations throughout the world. And God essentially rejects the world system as well and chooses to work through one man, through Abraham that he calls to himself. And that one man is promised that he will become a great nation. And God actually enters into a covenant, so a legally binding document or covenant that will produce a nation that will have the name of Israel after one of the descendants of Abraham in the line of the Messiah, ultimately. Israel is to eventually eventuate into the kingdom, and God intends to exercise sovereignty delegated to mankind through the nation of Israel, just as he began in Genesis chapter 1. So the kingdom is somewhat the high point of the nation of Israel, and it gives us an example of how God wants to rule on earth through man. But without man in a regenerated state and without kings that are sinless, the kingdom collapses. And we're looking at a period in between the kingdom and the coming of Messiah. And this period after the destruction of the kingdom, I don't show it on this slide, prepares the nation of Israel for its coming Messiah, who is the ideal king, who will establish a kingdom and will fulfill what God has promised. But Messiah is rejected, so we have kind of a parenthetical period of time called the church, where God's going to deal in a unique way, different from Israel. And from that New Testament period of time, We have prophecies and preparation for a coming millennial kingdom that will have all of the elements of this kingdom here with regenerated people based on the new covenant 
and it'll have a sinless king, so it will not fail. That's the millennial kingdom. Man can't produce it. That's world history. Now, we won't get to those latter parts that deal with the Messiah, coming of Messiah and the church and the millennial kingdom. The underlying perfection of God that I see here is God's grace. Israel violated God's covenant. God is not obligated in any way to the nation of Israel. If he so chose, he would be perfectly just to abandon, to even annihilate the nation of Israel, except that he has a covenant. And based on that covenant and based on his grace, God will fulfill what he has promised, not only by promise, but also by covenant. So the period of return, this is after the exile, after the children of Israel have been destroyed as a nation. God begins to restore them. It begins a restoration that is partial. And it begins with a return to the land, and it it has some spiritual elements, and it's preparation for a coming of the Messiah. So God's grace underlies that. J.I. Packer defines it. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity. The nation of Israel could remain in exile had God chosen. In fact, they could have been destroyed and annihilated severity if God so chose. He could have abandoned them totally. But it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. And that's you and I as well. But it's vividly illustrated by the nation of Israel. And that's what grace is all about. And we could look at hundreds of passages that uh, tell us of God's grace. Psalm 103.8 The Lord is compassionate, and he shows compassion to his people, children of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. God is gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is covenant love. God responding to the covenant that he established with the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. We're the recipients of that same grace that God bestowed on the nation of Israel. Now, this isn't the first display of grace, but I think it underlies very vividly this period of the return of the nation of Israel. So that's our underlying perfection of God. On our timeline here, we've seen the creation, we've seen the fall. In fact, I'll let you, let's go back. Creation, fall. Flood. Flood. Scattering. Scattering. 4,000 people, or Abraham. Abraham and the covenant. Yeah, and then... Okay, somebody else? (laughs) (laughs) I can act it all out. Yes, she can act it all out. Anyone want to help her? Or is she uh, on her own here? (laughs) Okay, Abraham. What else? If you can remember these, you've got a handle on the Old Testament. You basically can do it. Okay, Linda, we got to go back to you. Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, uh, ex- well, the Jews go to Israel, then the Exodus. Exodus is the next eight event. Then the uh, Law. Law. And then the conquest. Conquest. That, and then, um, 
Yeah. Anyone? What did we do last week? Rejection of the law by... Well, we didn't put that as a major event. The law, but... but Failure of the conquest. Well, that was part of the conquest. We didn't separate that out. Yeah. What was the next major event? Kingdom. Most important one. (laughs) Kingdom. And then... Then the destruction of the kingdom, beginning with the divided kingdom. But we're thinking of just 11 events, basically. So, here we are. Creation, fall, flood, scattering, Abraham, Exodus, law, conquest, kingdom, destruction. And now, number 11, return. If you can remember these, you've got a handle on the whole Old Testament. And you, you basically can fill in the gaps. And and by the, this is the historical major events of the Old Testament. This is history. You can put all the other books of the Bible in the context of these events. You can put all of the poetic books. They were written during the kingdom. They were written probably before Solomon. Some David. David wrote, what, 75 of the Psalms or half of the Psalms. So... You can put all those other books. Leviticus, that's part of the law. You know, all the other books of the Old Testament. Numbers would be included here in terms of the period between the Exodus and the conquest. So all of the other books you can kind of fit in the context there. So let's take a look at the return. And as we've seen, uh, just a reminder, we have been seeing these cycles of sin. God works a work of grace. And after he works a work of grace, he allows sin to begin its corrupting effects. We've seen that in the kingdom, where the corrupting effects begins with a divided kingdom, and then the northern kingdom totally corrupts itself. There's no good kings. God takes them into captivity. So there's a period of time there where God is patiently enduring sin, and reach sin reaches its full corruption, and... The northern kingdom goes into captivity. Same thing, same cycle. This takes a little longer in the southern kingdom. And we have the full corruption. And God brings, God intervenes to judge and to save. And in the case of Israel, to discipline. And the exile and all of that is discipline. So now he's going to begin another work, a work of grace. And we could consider the return part of that work of grace. Same timeline, looking at the outline, we have the origin of Israel, we have the emergence of Israel on the timeline here, so a long period of time here, book of Genesis, emergence of Israel, those events related, kingdom age, relatively short, including the destruction here, and then we have the return here, and then we have a space of time, after the return, there's 400 years of silence until the coming of Messiah, where God is preparing the world, which we'll talk about, for the coming of Messiah. He prepares Israel, and he prepares the world for the coming of Messiah, which is the high point of world history. Not only the center point, the high point in terms of the most important event. So, the return of Israel, we can break this down. Ezra, we could uh, consider it the restoration of Zerubbabel and Ezra. Zerubbabel did what? Cleaned up the rubble. <laughs> and Ezra somewhat cleaned up the people, you might say. In Nehemiah, we have the restoration of Nehemiah, that book of Nehemiah. He repaired the walls for security. There's other principles. 
So when we speak of the return of Israel, the first implication to draw is this is a period of time that is preparation for Israel, or the preparation of Israel. God is in the process of preparing them for the coming of Messiah. That's the whole purpose of this period, and that's what God is doing. And in that, we already talked about the purging of idolatry to some extent. And now, God is beginning a restoration of the nation. It's not a complete restoration in many ways. It's not complete spiritually. It's not complete geographically, because they really are not an independent nation yet. They will continue to be under the dominion of Gentile powers. And we'll talk about all of that. 